Welcome to Pennsylvania in Focus, powered by the Center Square and a production of America's Talking Network. I'm Kristen Smith, Pennsylvania editor at the Center Square Newswire Service. To support fine podcasts like this one, please donate. You can click the link in the show description. And you can find all of the Center Square's great podcasts at americastalking.com. You can also link the Center Square podcasts through the podcast drop-down menu at thecentersquare.com. We are recording on Thursday, February 2nd, 2023. Joining me today is Anthony Hennon, our Pennsylvania reporter based in Philadelphia. Welcome back to the podcast, Anthony. Happy Groundhog's Day. Happy Groundhog Day, Kristen. <laughs> are you uh, disappointed in six more weeks of winter? I mean, it's been a uh, it's been a fairly light winter as it is in Philly. Um, so I, I'm hoping for more snow at least. Um, if it's just frigid cold and nothing at all, then I will be disappointed. But we'll see. So will I. And I, I hate to admit it, but I was well over the age of legal drinking before I realized that six more weeks of winter and six more weeks of, or, and spring is right around the corner were the same exact thing. So um, <laughs> it's embarrassing, but it's not something they teach in school, at least not here in Pennsylvania, which brings me to my very first topic of conversation this week. Um, the big story is the information that you brought us exclusively about as a follow-up to a story that we started last week, Auditor General Tim DeFore did this report, this audit of 12 school districts, and laid out how they use accounting maneuvers to move money around their budget so that they can raise taxes without putting it to a public vote. This has caused a lot of uproar in the last week, but the Center Square dove deep into the 200-page report. By the Center Square, I mean Anthony. I did not help with this. Um, to kind of give us just... A little bit more information, well, a lot of more information about what exactly they were doing. And it was very fascinating. So I'd love for you to tell us more about what what was happening at the school district level to let this go on. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, I'll do my best not to dive too much into the weeds here. But a quick uh, overview of this was essentially uh, the Auditor General looked at a dozen different school districts across Pennsylvania, um, some bigger ones, some smaller ones, you know, Western Pennsylvania, Eastern, blah, blah, blah. Uh, essentially looking at these uh, tax exceptions that these districts would request. Um, essentially, uh, in Pennsylvania, if there's a school district tax increase, uh, the public gets to vote on it, whether they support the levy, whether they uh, reject it. However, um, in, certain, uh, in certain circumstances, school districts can raise taxes without having to put that up to a public vote. Um, essentially what they have to do is show, um, that their general fund, um, you know, there, there's a low amount of money available. Um, and this is sort of intended as a, you know, an extreme measure when there's some sort of economic problem, some sort of wall gets hit, that funding can then come through with a tax increase rather than it getting dragged out, possibly downvoted. Um, however, uh, this has been essentially exploited as a legal loophole, um, what the auditor found in his report is that essentially uh, within the school's general fund, um, a lot of this money would get moved around. Um, you know, the, let's see, the best way to describe this is the way to trigger an exception where they would apply to the Pennsylvania Department of Education. And then the Department of Education would look over these criteria to uh, determine whether to issue a, a tax referendum exception. And if the schools had um, a low enough reserve of uh, uh, unassigned funds, 
then they would get the uh, tax referendum exception, and then schools had the authority to just raise taxes without turning over to a public vote. Um, it's important to note that even though a school might uh, be awarded that exception, uh, they didn't always raise taxes. Um, I think over the four-year period with a dozen schools that the auditor looked at, um, they raised taxes 37 times, but they could have done it, I believe, 48 times if they wanted to. They had the authority in that instance. Um, however, uh, these schools weren't actually lacking funds in the way the public may have been led to believe, um, though they had very little um, unassigned funds. Uh, they still had money. Essentially, uh, th there's a few different ways to categorize uh, school funding within the general fund. Some of it they can't spend um, by law or by contract. Some of it is in the form of inventory or whatever else that's not actually in a liquid form where they could spend it. Um, but other times they can categorize funds as uh, committed. So schools, uh, it turned out, at least these 12 districts that the auditor looked at, they would commit funds um, generally to either uh, capital projects, to special education, or towards uh, pension costs. They would commit the funds, but after they committed the fund, uh, they were not required to spend it. Um, you know, they could commit, you know, $5 million to pension costs, but then they wouldn't actually put th that $5 million into pension funds. Uh, however, it's committed, it's not uh, unassigned, so therefore they could get a uh, tax referendum uh, exception. Uh, so basically what you saw a lot of these schools doing was lowering um, their unassigned funds so they could have the tax exception in their pocket. And then they could have the authority to raise taxes without actually um, giving it up to a public vote or without actually um, being shorthanded on these funds. So, you know, there's there's a dozen different schools that the audit report walked through. Um, I just focused on one. Um, I believe it was Abington. Yes, the Abington School District. Um, and so the school district policy was essentially to make to zero out their um, unassigned funds where they would commit these funds and they would commit them to, uh, you know, pension costs, mainly special education. But they want to actually spend those funds. And then uh, when they justified the tax increase, uh, they would couch it in terms of needing it for pension costs. Um, so this is essentially a way of keeping more money in the bank, um, raising taxes without turning over to a public vote. Um, and the auditors, auditor, uh, basically argued that these, uh, actions could mislead taxpayers thinking that, you know, the school district is hurting for funds when really they have millions, if not tens of millions in the bank. Um, they're just not spending it. Right. So the way, I mean, and you did a great job there, not getting too deep into the weeds because it's very easy on this, but the way that I like to think about it is in the same way, well, let me start by saying, they didn't technically do anything wrong here. Nothing illegal. Yes, Ethically, yes. Everything, everything was completely yeah. legal here. Yeah. Ethically, it probably raises concerns depending on how you view public education funding and spending in Pennsylvania, which is very contested depending on your viewpoint. Um, but the way that I like to think about it or interpret it, as you will, is that in the same way that businesses and even people seek out professional accountants to help them make the most of their money and to pay to get through tax time without owing the most amount of money. It seems like this is a similar strategy. It's not that they're doing anything nefarious with this money. It's that they're trying to be as financially prudent as they can possibly be 
and hedging their bets essentially because of the inconsistency of state funding at times, you know, our budgets go longer. And we, and we brought this up last week a lot that that does happen. And so their reasoning isn't out of left field or completely unbelievable. Um, but it is something that taxpayers should be aware of. It's, you know, when you hear um, that they're raising tax school property tax or school taxes again on us, which um, in Pennsylvania is usually the largest portion of your tax bill, um, you want to know why. And if they say it's for pensions, you want to believe that's why. If they say it's for special education, you want to believe that that's where that money is going. And correct me if I'm wrong, but there is a they could eventually put that money into pensions, right? If their strategy is is to just kind of save money in a pot till they're sure that they're getting the right funding from the state, for example, they could eventually commit that extra money, right? To, yeah. to what they said they were going to. So it's not like they're completely lying and using it to give major bonuses or go on a three-week cruise or, or anything like that. Yeah. So when, when we're talking about these funds, um, unassigned funds are basically, there's less, uh, there's less of a formal process to authorize how that money will be spent. When funds are committed, it takes some sort of formal action from the school board. So in the case of Abington, they would um, basically commit all these funds. And by doing this, um, it required a resolution on the part of the school board to move it there. Um, I, what, I, I guess maybe the best analogy here would be, you know, if you're, if, if you're looking to, say, qualify for some sort of like COVID financial aid, um, and it, it would depend on you have having below a certain amount in your bank account. If you would withdraw money from the bank account and put it away, you know, in your desk, so then that's not showing up in your bank account. It's making you look like you're more in need than you otherwise would be. Um here it's it's kind of a similar situation where, you know, the funds are committed for pension costs, but when you look at school districts and how they're arguing for um these tax uh these tax referenda exceptions. Um, you know, they're, they're basically saying we need more money to cover pension costs, but they have already funds dedicated for pension costs, yet they don't spend that money on the pension costs. So it, it looks like to a, to a taxpayer, if you're not combing through these budgets, it's looking like they're asking for more money when they don't have it. But in fact, they do actually have it. They're just not spending it toward that. So it, it's sort of a, you know, unless you're really getting technical and really combing through this. You wouldn't realize that they have five million already dedicated for pension costs, but they're going and asking for another million from taxpayers without actually having to put it up to a vote. So it gets, you know, it gets it gets very touchy here. Um, these dozen districts are also not the only ones doing this, most likely. Um, you know, there's 500 districts in Pennsylvania. This is probably happening a lot simply because it's useful for school boards to have that flexibility. And also, you know, there's issues where when you have to submit your budget even though you don't know how much you're actually getting from state or local sources, it makes sense if you're on the school board that you want that in the pocket. Um, but this is not necessarily clear toward taxpayers. And it seems like it's presenting a uh, not so accurate picture of the actual financial state of local school districts across the Commonwealth. Right. And so perhaps not unexpectedly, the Auditor General has faced some pushback for this report. What, what have you been hearing out there? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, when you look at the school district's response, a lot of this is focused on, you know, nothing we're doing here is illegal. Um, this is a prudent step for us because state and local funding can be, you know, inconsistent or at least unpredictable because you don't always know how big your tax base is. Um, there's always debates in the General Assembly about how much money is actually going to go to schools. Uh, so, you know, on, on one level, it makes sense that you want to have that in your pocket. 
Um, we've also seen some criticism saying, you know, the auditor should be focusing more on the money going to charter schools, um, which to one extent, you know, is fair. I think it's good in general to have tr- uh, accountability and transparency where every state dollar is going. Uh, but at the same time, you're kind of moving the goalposts where, you know, be that as it may, the issue at hand is school districts um, using this sort of creative accounting or creative uh, ways to avoid uh, a public uh, referenda on tax increases. Um, when, when you look at the school district responses within the audit to the audit report before they published it, um, you know, there's no actual refutation here of, you know, the data presented here is inaccurate. Um, I, I think a lot of this is simply school districts are not necessarily, uh, this is not the best PR for them. And some of them feel like it's, it's being misrepresented what they're doing. Uh, you know, again, nothing they're doing here is illegal. Um, it may be misleading at times for someone who's not following the debates closely. Uh, but you know, this is one of those things where school funding gets very complicated. How money gets allocated and spent gets complicated. And I, I think it's fair for the public to, uh, to make sure they're on the same page here and not just getting, uh, you know, school district accounting presented in the most po- positive light possible. Right. It's calling out charter schools. It, it really reads to me uh, like what about you know, oh, sure, the, maybe this is a problem, but what about charter schools? And I think that does a disservice in general. There's Pennsylvania is very slow to update any of its laws, the charter school law, how we fund education. I mean, they didn't update their basic or their special education funding formula until I want to say 2015 or 2016. And that's after decades of it being inadequate. So, you know, the fact that school districts are having to get creative and go and sometimes go into these gray areas of accounting isn't surprising. They have to balance budgets based on levels that were set, you know, in some cases, decades before their current administrators came on board. So there's definitely a lot of, you know, it, I know that the you know there there's a lot of support for public school districts and probably a lot of urge from people to to support them to defend them against this. But I think it just if anything points to more policy action that we can take to give school districts more certainty and to make this less something that they don't have to do. Um, because you know it's not just school districts that have to make a lot of decisions, revenue decisions that you know taxpayers may not be comfortable with if they truly understood. You did another story this week about how a lot of municipalities in Pennsylvania, there's over 2,500 for uh, reference, but there's a lot that use fines and fees almost exclusively to balance their budgets. And I think that's something that we, every time you pay a speeding ticket um, or a parking ticket, that you think in the back of your mind, it's like, oh, really? Do they really need to give this to me? They just have a quota or they just need more money. Somebody wants a pay raise. And I'm not saying that that's what this money is for, but this kind of leans into that idea and illuminates it to that a certain extent. Yes, these fines and fees do a lot to support your your municipality. So will you tell us a little bit more about what you found? Yeah, I think this is uh, just reflective of the broader issue here of people much prefer to get services and not pay for them rather than to get services and have to pay for them. So, you know, taxes, raising taxes is always unpopular. Uh, it's always a fight. You know, you're spending a lot on it. So in this case, um, this was actually an analysis coming from uh, the Reason Foundation, which basically looked at data uh, out of the U.S. Census Bureau, um, you know, states on the uh Across the nation, state governments, county governments, local governments, 
you see a mix of fines and fees for a lot of different things. Um, it's not so much that fines are bad. In a lot of case cases, you know, fines are a much more effective use of time than, you know, jailing someone for something minor or but it's still antisocial or what have you. Um, fees, when they're used appropriately, can also be a useful deterrent or a, a, a uh, you know, fairly common sense use to fund some things. Uh, but this analysis was basically looking at local governments across the nation and how much uh, they rely on fines and other fees to fund different services. Um, nationwide, um, when we're looking at only at local governments, not state governments, uh, they collected more than $9 billion through fines and fees um, in 2020. Uh, Pennsylvania overall was ranked 10th here. Um, it pulled in about $202 million. Uh, and when we're talking about fines, a lot of these, you know, it's generally going to be uh, traffic tickets or, you know, parking violations, um, you know, unkempt lawn. So your grass gets too tall and the city finds you, you know, local ordinances like that. Um, so, you know, some of this, uh, it makes sense if you're going 40 through a 20 mile per hour zone, you deserve the ticket. You're putting the public at risk. Um, but a lot of times what you see is uh, rather than uh, just these fines being used as a deterrent or a common sense criminal justice issue, um, these kind of become an end in, in and of themselves, um, especially in small towns and rural communities where you have a shrinking tax base um, and you don't necessarily want to increase taxes or you can't necessarily get all the revenue you need. Uh, you see this pop up a lot. Um, these small towns near you know interstates, near state borders, um, college towns, it also seems to be a pattern, at least anecdotally. Um, back in Ohio, my college town also appeared on this list uh, that stood out among um, a lot of issues. Um, but when the small towns do it, they jump out a lot because, uh, you know, these fines and fees can really start adding up and making a significant portion of the budget. Uh, so when we're looking at Pennsylvania, um, one uh, one town uh, over near the Ohio border, uh, Jamestown in Mercer County, um, 64% of the town's revenue actually comes through fi- fees and fines. Um, it collected $105,000 doing this. Um, you know, granted, the overall budget that's going to put at about one hundred sixty-five thousand, I believe it was. Uh, so you know, it, it's a it's a fairly small scale, uh, but they're clearly using uh, using their location to an advantage here, putting the burden of paying for local services onto people just passing through or what have you. Um, so you know, again, small towns stand out in this a lot. Um, another town in Pennsylvania or a borough rather, uh, Mount Holly Springs over in Cumberland County, south of Harrisburg and Carlisle. Uh, that was the second, second highest, uh, where 12% of its budget came from uh, this way of collecting revenue. Um, granted, uh, only 12% compared to the 64% up in Jamestown, uh, but actually collected more fines, 127000 rather than $105,000. Um, so, uh, you know, th- this kind of overrepresents these small towns simply because it stands out more with their budget. Uh, but when you're looking at totals, um, actually Bloomsburg, which I believe is another uh, college town in Pennsylvania. Um, it collected the most, um, almost 9% of revenue for the town's budget. Uh, but that came out to $731,000, um, which kind of stood out compared to other, other towns and boroughs on this list. Number two is Doylestown, north of Philadelphia, which is 350,000 it collected, but that was only 5% of the borough's revenue. Um, so, you know, we, we see this at play a lot. Um, I think these smaller towns, it stands out more. Uh, but one of the issues here is, you know, there, there's a data problem. Um, this data is not definitive. This is more almost anecdotal or su- suggestive, where for every town we see this happening, 
there's probably a dozen where we're missing simply because the uh, data on things like this is not as uh, easily collected or widely reported. Um, so I, I think that's an issue. We don't want to emphasize too much that, you know, it's just Jamestown or it, it's, you know, Bloomsburg is the worst of the worst in the Commonwealth. There could be others. Um, it's just kind of hard to track these things. Um, and the issue here, yeah, you know, for local residents, it's great because otherwise they'd be paying more in taxes. Um, but on the other hand, uh, these tend to be regressive. Um, you can look at, you know, different different states um, or other parts of the U.S. You see issues where, uh, you know, someone who's going who's committed a crime and is in either under house arrest or some other form, even like staying in jail, um, there can be fees for their stay in jail. Um, there can be fees um, going to fund public defenders. There can be fees going for, you know, ankle monitors. Uh, there's a lot of these different fees that uh, tend to be added on to the original fine, um, which really, you know, if you're having trouble paying a parking ticket, that's 50 bucks and you end up not being able to pay it, it quickly turns into adding on fees. It can double or triple that amount. Um, and, you know, if you, if you break a law, there's a reason why we punish you. Um, but there's also the Reason Foundation report here recommended, you know, there's alternative ways to punish um, or at least alternative ways not to stack these fees on top of one another to put someone in a position where they may end up losing their job um, for a fairly minor offense. Um, so, you know, there, there's some widespread data issues here. Sometimes the pun- the financial punishment here is greater than the actual crime. Uh, you know, there's some things to consider, but also, uh, you know, th- this is another instance of it becomes very easy to uh, lower your speeding limit in a very misleading or tricky way to put the cost of government services elsewhere rather than the people who might complain about it. Well, that's the perfect lead into the final story we're going to talk about this week. Josh Shapiro, our brand new governor, he signed his third executive order in the last, what is it, two weeks since he took office. This time, he has decided that effective immediately, Every time that you have to submit a professional license or certification or permit to the state uh, for your job, this this is something that nurses do, teachers, cosmetologists, barbers, all kinds of professions. Every time you have to go through that professional license or process to be able to continue to work in Pennsylvania, there's generally a lengthy process that you go to that costs money, you pay fees. And often the state is really delayed in getting back to you to the point where now you're missing deadlines. Now you have to pay more money just to get back into compliance. It's a pretty widespread problem that holds a lot of people back and puts shifts the burden of these regulations really onto them because they're paying these fees. And then when the state falls behind, it's still their fault. They still have to make up the difference financially. So Governor Shapiro said, nah, no more. Um, every application is going to get something that he called a date certain, which means This is the date that the state agency that you're going through has to respond to you. And if they miss that date, now they have to refund you for all the fees that you paid. It's, again, this continuation of his very no-nonsense practical approaches to making Pennsylvania a better place to work. I know that sounds kind of, you know, uh, like a PR slogan, but anyone will tell you that Pennsylvania has a very aggressive tax structure. There's a lot of licensing and a lot of hoops to jump through for sometimes very basic jobs, and it prevents business growth. And we're not just talking about big corporations. We're talking about 
you know, the person who wants to open their own hair salon or somebody who wants to be a nurse, which we have a nursing shortage. As a matter of fact, we have a labor shortage. So simple little things like this, the governor says, is going to help fix that. And it's something that is widely supported in the General Assembly. As we've been reporting for weeks, there's been a lot of tension, a lot of divide, a lot of gridlock. But something like this, and actually his other two executive orders, one of which uh, got rid of the college degree requirement for 92% of jobs, and a second one, which creates a office of, I can't remember the exact word, but what it is, is it's a one-stop shop for business owners to come to kind of streamline the process, access funding, you know, just kind of have somebody walk them through step-by-step of how to get their business off the ground, how to be more successful. Again, a really practical approach to helping people be successful in the state and kind of making it more friendly to businesses big and small. So as you can imagine, this is something that's playing really well with the Republican legislators. You know, that's something that's been a priority for them in the last couple of years, especially since COVID, they've made a lot of strides to uh, enact regulatory reforms that make these professional licensor, licensing uh, regulations much less stringent. There was a lot of waivers that were permanently approved after the COVID-19 pandemic, things like you can now get continuing education credits exclusively online for certain things, which before you couldn't. And, and, and in 2023, that, that seems like an impossibility. Um, they've processed the, or they sped up the process for veteran applications. They've made it so that certain criminal convictions can no longer preclude you from getting a professional license. So for once, this is something that seems like nobody is going to really argue with. And in fact, they might even bring up legislation to further support these executive orders. But uh, what what do you think about this drastic change in tone between the new Shapiro administration and the Wolf administration as far as executive orders go? Yeah, so I think it's hopeful. Um, I, I think if nothing else, it does show that Shapiro is not just continuing Wolf's priorities or his approach. Um, and it does seem to be following up on a number of Shapiro's campaign promises or rhetoric um, to govern as a moderate, as someone who can bring people together. Um, so, I mean, especially compared to what we've seen in the General Assembly lately, uh, you know, it's, it's hopeful. It seems, if nothing else, pragmatic and really um, going in with more clear-eyed vision of what economic challenges the Commonwealth has. Uh, my only concern here is, I, I guess, two things. Um, you know, we, we don't see a lot of these executive orders in other states, so we'll see the uh, actual effect here. Um, I, I, cause I, I could see this as, you know, a positive effect of really changing the priorities within different state agencies that deal with licensing, with deal with approvals and that sort of thing, making sure that they're more efficient on that level. You know, some, you know, getting out some PR stuff might fall behind, but like they need to hit this deadline. Um, so on that level, if that works out, that's great. Um, I think that's a boost for, you know, People of all stripes, whoever they're trying to do, um, any any time we can cut down on government bureaucracy, I think that's a win. And better efficiency leads to better government services across the board. Um, on the other hand, I could see this as a problem cropping up, where you know different state agencies talk about being shorthanded or having trouble recruiting more people. Um, so if, if we do have a legitimate labor shortage there, uh, that will just tend to have a lot of refund rates, which is great for specific people, um, but then it could require, you know, more state funding for these agencies. Um, or we have another situation where, you know, say before this executive order, it they would essentially give you an idea of about two months and then you might hit that and that's basically it. 
Um, this could just end up in state agencies issuing rather than saying two months like before, they might say four months or six months, making the process even longer just so they can avoid paying those refunds out. Um, so, you, you know, I, I, I don't really have any predictions or opinions of which way that can go. I think that'll vary from agency to agency, um, you know, staffing levels, the complications that go along with these licensing approvals and refunds. Uh, but, you know, there, I, I think there's an optimistic way to look at this in a pessimistic way. I, I hope the optimistic way wins out and this just kind of results in better, better government services and um, a more clear eyed vision of how state agencies should be run. But time will tell. And I, I think it'll be a good, uh, if nothing else, it'll be a good uh, thing for other uh, state governors to watch out for. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about you can't pull a string over here without loosening some threads over there. And so uh, that's an excellent point to remember if these deadlines are just going to extend and kind of have the opposite effect. But um, that's about all the time we have for today, actually. Thanks for joining me, Anthony. It was a great conversation as always. And we encourage you to find news that matters for taxpayers of Pennsylvania at thecentersquare.com. To support fine podcasts like this one, please donate. You can click the link in the show description. This has been Pennsylvania in Focus, part of the America's Talking Network. Find all of the Center Square's podcasts at americastalking.com. I'm Kristen Smith, and I'll be back next week with Anthony Hennon to discuss the biggest stories affecting you, the taxpayers. Mm-hmm.